Chapter Twenty Five of Fighting the Flying Circus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. Fighting the Flying Circus by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Chapter Twenty Five. American Ace of Aces. On September fifteenth, the weather was ideal for flying. I left the aerodrome at eight thirty in the morning on a voluntary patrol, taking the nearest air route to the lines. I had reached an altitude of sixteen thousand feet by the time I had reached the trenches. The visibility was unusually good. I could see for miles and miles in every direction. I was flying alone, with no idea as to whether other planes of our own were cruising about this sector or not. But barely had I reached a position over no man's land when I noticed a formation of six enemy Fokkers at about my altitude coming towards me from the direction of Conflans. I turned and began the usual tactics of climbing into the sun. I noticed the Fokkers alter their direction, and still climbing move eastwards towards the Moselle. I did not see how they could help seeing me, as scarcely a mile separated us. However, they did not attack, nor did they indicate that they suspected my presence, beyond continuing steadily their climb for elevation. Three complete circles they made on their side of the lines. I did the same on my side. Just at this moment I discovered four spod machines far below the enemy planes and some three miles inside the German lines. I decided at once they must belong to the American Second Fighting Group, at that time occupying the aerodrome at Suilly. They appeared to be engaged in bombing the roads and strafing enemy infantry from a low altitude. The spods of the Second Pursuit Group had but recently been equipped with bomb racks for carrying small bombs. The leader of the Fokker formation saw the spods at about the same moment I did. I saw him dip his wings and stick down his nose. Immediately the six Fokkers began a headlong peek directly down at the spods. Almost like one of the formation, I followed suit. Inside the first thousand feet I found I was rapidly overtaking the enemy machines. By the time we had reached five thousand feet, I was in a position to open fire upon the rear man. Not once had any of them looked around. Either they had forgotten me in their anxiety to get at their prey, or else had considered I would not attempt to take them all on single-handed. At all events, I was given ample time to get my man dead into my sights before firing. I fired one long burst. I saw my tracer bullets go straight home into the pilot's seat. There came a sudden burst of fire from his fuel tank, and the Fokker continued onwards in its mad flight, now a fiery furnace. He crashed a mile inside his own lines. His five companions did not stay to offer battle. I still held the upper hand, and even got in a few bursts at the next nearest machine, before he threw himself into a vree and escaped me. The sight of one of their members falling in flames evidently quite discouraged them. Abandoning all their designs on the unsuspecting spots below, they dived away for Germany and left me the field. I returned to my field, secured a car, and drove immediately up to the lines of our balloon section. I wanted to get my victories confirmed both this one of today and the Fokker that I had brought down yesterday in the same sector. For no matter how many pilots may have witnessed the bringing down of an enemy plane, official confirmation of their testimony must be obtained from outside witnesses on the ground. Often these are quite impossible to get. In such a case the victory is not credited to the pilot. Upon the tragic death of Major Lufbury, who at that time was the leading American ace, with eighteen victories, the title of American Ace of Aces fell to Lieutenant Paul Frank Bear of Fort Wayne, Indiana, a member of the Lafayette Escadrille 103. Bear then had nine victories and had never been wounded. Bear is a particularly modest and lovable boy, and curiously enough, 
he is one of the few fighting pilots i have met who felt a real repugnance in his task of shooting down enemy aviators when lufbury fell bear's commanding officer major william thaw called him into the office and talked seriously with him regarding the opportunity before him as america's leading ace he advised bear to be cautious and he would go far two days later bear was shot down and slightly wounded behind the german lines thereafter lieutenant frank bayliss of new bedford massachusetts a member of the crack french escadrille of the cigan spod three held the american title until he was killed in action on june twelfth nineteen eighteen bayliss had thirteen victories to his credit then david putnam another massachusetts boy took the lead with twelve victories over enemy aeroplanes putnam as i have said was like lufbury shot down in flames but a day or two before my last victory lieutenant tobin of san antonio texas and a member of the third pursuit group of which major william thaw was the commanding officer now had six official victories he led the list i for my part had five victories confirmed but upon receiving confirmation for the two fokkers i had vanquished yesterday and today i would have my seven and would lead tobin by one so it was with some little interest and impatience that i set off to try to find ground witnesses of my last two battles above san mihel mingled with this natural desire to become the leading fighting ace of america was a haunting superstition that did not leave my mind until the very end of the war it was that the very possession of this title ace of aces brought with it the unavoidable doom that had overtaken all its previous holders i wanted it and yet i feared to learn that it was mine in later days i began to feel that this superstition was almost the heaviest burden that i carried with me into the air perhaps it served to redouble my caution and sharpened my fighting senses but never was i able to forget that the life of the title-holder is short eating my sandwiches in the car that day i soon ran through st mihel and made my way on the main road east to apremont and then north to Tiacor. i knew that there had been a balloon up near there both days and felt certain that their observers must have seen my two combats overhead unfortunately the road from apremont to Tiacor was closed owing to the great number of shell-holes and trenches which criss-crossed it after being lost for two hours in the forest which lies between st mihel and Vignoles, i was finally able to extricate myself and found i had emerged just south of Vignoles. i was about one mile south of our trenches and standing there with map in hand wondering where to go next to find our balloons i got an unexpected clue a sudden flare of flames struck my sight off to the right running around the trees i caught a view of one of our balloons between me and Tiacor, completely immersed in flames halfway down was a graceful little parachute beneath which swung the observer as he settled slowly to mother earth and as i gazed i saw a second balloon two or three miles further east towards pont de mousson perform the same maneuver another of our observers was making the same perilous jump a sly hiney had slipped across our lines and had made a successful attack upon the two balloons and had made a clean getaway i saw him climbing up away from the furious gale of anti-aircraft fire which our gunners were speeding after him i am afraid my sympathies were almost entirely with the airmen as i watched the murderous bursting of archie all around his machine at any rate i realized exactly how he was feeling with his mixture of satisfaction over the success of his undertaking and of panic over the deadly mess of shrapnel about him in half an hour i arrived at the balloon site and found them already preparing to go aloft with a second balloon and at my first question they smiled and told me they had seen my fokker of this morning's combat crash in flames they readily signed the necessary papers to this effect thus constituting the required confirmation for my last victory 
but for the victory of yesterday that i claimed they told me none of the officers were present who had been there on duty at that time i must go to the third balloon company just north of pont mousson and there i would find the men i wanted to see after watching the new balloon get safely launched with a fresh observer in the basket a process which consumed some ten or fifteen minutes i retraced my steps and made my way back to my motor the observer whom i had seen descending under his parachute had in the meantime made his return to the company headquarters he was unhurt and quite enthusiastic over the splendid landing he had made in the trees incidentally i learned that but two or three such forced descents by parachute from a flaming balloon are permitted any one observer these jumps are not always so simple and frequently very serious if not fatal injuries are received in the parachute jump seldom does one officer care to risk himself in a balloon basket after his third jump and this fear for his own safety limits very naturally his service and bravery in that trying business the american record in this perilous profession is held i believe by lieutenant phelps of new york who made five successive jumps from a flaming balloon on my way to the third balloon company i stopped to inquire the road from a group of infantry officers whom i met just north of pont mousson as soon as i stated my business they unanimously exclaimed that they had all seen my flight above them yesterday and had seen my victim crash near them after getting them to describe the exact time and place and some of the incidents of the fight i found that it was indeed my combat that they had witnessed this was a piece of real luck for me it ended my researches on the spot as they were very kindly signing their confirmation i was thinking to myself eddie you are the american ace of aces and so i was for the minute turning home i lost no time in putting in my reports reed chambers came up to me and hit me a thump on the back well rick he said how does it feel very fine for the moment reed i replied seriously but any other fellow can have the title any time he wants it so far as i am concerned i really meant what i was saying a fortnight later when frank luke began his marvellous balloon strafing he passed my score in a single jump luke as i have said was on the same aerodrome with me being a member of twenty seven squadron his rapid success even brought twenty seven squadron ahead of ninety five squadron for a few days following day i witnessed a typical expedition of luke's from our own aerodrome just about dusk on september sixteenth luke left the major's headquarters and walked over to his machine as he came out of the door he pointed out the two german observation balloons to the east of our field both of which could be plainly seen with the naked eye they were suspended in the sky about two miles back of the bosch lines and were perhaps four miles apart keep your eyes on these two balloons said frank as he passed us you will see that first one there go up in flames exactly at seven fifteen and the other will do likewise at seven nineteen we had little idea he would really get either of them but we all gathered together out in the open as the time grew near and kept our eyes glued to the distant specks in the sky suddenly major hartney exclaimed there goes the first one it was true a tremendous flare of flame lighted up the horizon we all glanced at our watches it was exactly on the dot the intensity of our gaze towards the location of the second hun balloon may be imagined it had grown too dusk to distinguish the balloon itself but we well knew the exact point in the horizon where it hung not a word was spoken as we alternately glanced at the second hands of our watches and then at the eastern skyline almost upon the second our watching group yelled simultaneously a small blaze first lit up the point at which we were gazing almost instantaneously another gigantic burst of flames announced to us that the second balloon had been destroyed it was a most spectacular exhibition 
We all stood by on the aerodrome in front of Luke's hangar until fifteen minutes later, when we heard through the darkness the hum of his returning motor. His mechanics were shooting up red very lights with their pistols to indicate to him the location of our field. With one short circle above the aerodrome, he shut off his motor and made a perfect landing just in front of our group. Laughing and hugely pleased with his success, Luke jumped out and came running over to us to receive our heartiest congratulations. Within a half hour's absence from the field, Frank Luke had destroyed a hundred thousand dollars worth of enemy property. He had returned absolutely unscratched. A most extraordinary incident had happened just before Luke had left the ground. Lieutenant Jeffers, of my squadron, had been out on patrol with the others during the afternoon, and did not return with them. I was becoming somewhat anxious about him, when I saw a homing aeroplane coming from the lines towards our field. It was soon revealed as a spod, and was evidently intending to land at our field, but its course appeared to be very peculiar. I watched it gliding steeply down with engine cut off. Instead of making for the field, the pilot, whoever he was, seemed bent upon investigating the valley to the north of us before coming in. If this was Jeff, he was taking a foolish chance, since he had already been out longer than the usual fuel supply could last him. Straight down at the north hillside the spot continued its way. I ran out to see what Jeff was trying to do. I had a premonition that everything was not right with him. Just as his machine reached the skyline, I saw him make a sudden effort to redress the plane. It was too late. He slid off a little on his right wing, causing his nose to turn back towards the field. And then he crashed in the fringe of bushes below the edge of the hill. I hurried over to him. Imagine my surprise when I met him walking towards me, no bones broken, but wearing a most sheepish expression on his face. I asked him what in the world was the matter. Well, he replied, I might as well admit the truth. I went to sleep coming home and didn't wake up until about ten feet above the ground. I didn't have time to switch on my engine or even flatten out. I'm afraid I finished the little bus. Extraordinary as this tale seemed, it was nevertheless true. Jeffers had set his course for home at a high elevation over the lines, and cutting off his engine had drifted smoothly along. The soft air and monotonous luxury of motion had lulled him to sleep. Subconsciously his hand controlled the joystick, or else the splendid equilibrium of the spod had kept it upon an even keel without control. Like the true old coach horse it was, it kept the stable door in sight and made directly for it. Jeff's awakening might have been in another world, however, if he had not miraculously opened his eyes in the very nick of time. The next day, September 18th, our group suffered a loss that made us feel much vindictiveness as well as sorrow. Lieutenant Heinrichs and Lieutenant John Mitchell, both of 95 Squadron, were out together on patrol when they encountered six Fokker machines. They immediately began an attack. Mitchell fired one burst from each gun and then found them both hopelessly jammed. He signaled to Heinrichs that he was out of the battle and started for home. But at that same moment Heinrichs received a bullet through his engine, which suddenly put it out of action. He was surrounded by enemy planes and some miles back of the German lines. He broke through the enemy line and began his slow descent. Although it was evident he could not possibly reach our lines, the furious Huns continued swooping upon him, firing again and again as he coasted down. Ten different bullets struck his body in five different attacks. He was perfectly defenseless against any of them. He did not lose consciousness, although one bullet shattered his jawbone and bespattered his goggles so that he could not see through the blood. Just before he reached the ground, he managed to push up his goggles with his unwounded arm. The other was hanging limp and worthless by his side. He saw he was fairly into a piece of woodland and some distance within the German lines. He swung away and landed between the trees, 
turning his machine over as he crashed, but escaping further injury himself. Within an hour or two he was picked up and taken to a hospital in Metz. After the signing of the armistice, we saw Heinrichs again at the Toul Hospital. He was a mere shell of himself. Scarcely recognizable even by his old comrades, a first glance at his shrunken form indicated that he had been horribly neglected by his captors. His story quickly confirmed this suspicion. For the several weeks that he had lain in the Metz hospital, he told us that the Germans had not reset either his jaw or his broken arm. In fact, he had received no medical attention whatsoever. The food given him was bad and infrequent. It was a marvel that he had survived this frightful suffering. In all fairness to the Han, I think it is his due to say that such an experience as Heinrich suffered rarely came to my attention. In the large hospital in which he was confined, there were but six nurses and two doctors. They had to care for several scores of wounded. Their natural inclination was to care first for their own people. But how any people calling themselves human could have permitted Heinrich's suffering to go uncared for during all those weeks passes all understanding. Stories of this kind, which occasionally came to our ears, served to steel our hearts against any mercy towards the enemy pilots in our vicinity. And thus does chivalry give way before the horrors of war, even in aviation. End of chapter. Recording by Brett Downey.